Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that will always answer the question, what period of history would you like to visit for real with none of them? I'm a woman. Historically, that has not been a great thing to be. Welcome back to episode eight of Bitchy History. Guess what we're talking about today? We have found the witch. May we burn up? That's right. Today we are talking about the witch trials. I mentioned on Monday at the end of the show that this episode would be primarily focused on the New England witch trials, but as I began to write, I realized that it just wasn't adequate to only discuss the Puritan trials without giving the full context. So we'll be starting out with the European witch trials today and then working our way to the New World. Today's topic is one that popular culture has done dirty the most often, and honestly, I'm sick of it. I was looking for some funny TikTok sounds to make some videos promoting this episode, and when I searched for witch trial videos and found one video after another that either vastly misunderstood the history or put some supernatural spin on the story as if witchcraft was actually happening in Salem during the witch trials. No, sweetie, you are not a descendant of the witches of Salem. There were no witches at Salem. You also aren't the granddaughters of the witches they could not burn. Your name is Brittany, and you got a pack of Rider Waite tarot cards at Barnes & Noble. Chill. And I'm not saying that because I don't believe in witchcraft. I have an astounding collection of tarot cards and crystals, and I manifest financial stability just like every other millennial I know. Because financial stability isn't going to happen any other way than magic at this point. There just wasn't witchcraft in Salem. I mean, maybe Tichiba was practicing some form of folk magic from her culture, but that's about where that ends. And there certainly wasn't any packs with Satan or evil eyes. There was just a lot of paranoia and more than a boatload of misogyny. So let's get into the history of the witch trials. To start with, there's one very important thing to understand. The New England witch trials and the European witch trials are really not that similar, even though parts of the trials occurred during a similar time frame and some of the motivating factors cross over between the two, which we'll get into in a minute. The European witch hunts start earlier and the New England craze ended later. Also, far fewer people died in the New England trials overall than in Europe, partially because of the smaller population, but also because the accusations were more rare and fewer of the accused were actually found guilty or sentenced to death. However, despite the differences, there are also more than a few similarities in which demographics were targeted most often in both locations, by which I mean women, of course. This did vary from place to place during the witch trials, of course. In Iceland, male witches were more commonly prosecuted, but in Germany and the rest of Western Europe, women were the majority of those accused, and the same was true for the New England witch trials. A big part of the reason for this is the religious view of women at the time. In both Catholicism and Protestantism of the time, women were seen as morally and socially inferior, largely due to the Christian belief in original sin, which theologians largely blamed on Eve for the indiscretion of taking the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge. Women were weak in character, seducers who would lead men astray, and needed guidance of men to keep them on the righteous path. So basically, it's run like the Duggars Church. Since women were more weak-willed, it was seen as obvious that they would be the ones most easily seduced by the devil, which would make them the primary target as the witch trial craze swept across Europe. Some witch hunts would last for years. In Valais, Switzerland, for instance, the hunts would last for eight years, and 367 supposed witches were killed. However, the area, which is now Germany, had by far the most number of deaths due to the accusations of witchcraft. 
The witch trials of Trier ran for more than 10 years, from 1581 to 1593, and saw at least 368 executions, though numbers as high as 1,000 have been suggested. The witch trials of Fulda resulted in the death of about 250 people between 1603 and 1606. The Bamberg witch trials had an even higher death toll, with over 900 deaths being recorded between 1626 and 1632. And the Würzburg witch trials of 1625 to 1631 had as many as 157 executions, but estimates go as high as 900. These four were merely the largest group trials and executions of the period. Many smaller trials were held throughout rural areas with a smaller number of accusations and executions. The greatest number of executions for the crime of witchcraft occurred in the area which is now Germany during this period, with modern data estimating that 42% of witchcraft trials that ended in death took place in this area. The exact number of people executed during the European witch hunting craze is unknown, though estimates run to the tens of thousands. Modern wisdom has more or less come to the conclusion that accusations were usually linked to cases of bad weather. In the case of the trials in Bamberg, which began in 1626, these began soon after a bad frost destroyed the harvest for the entire region, leading locals to believe that witches had caused their destroyed crops. John Langens, the mayor of a town right outside Bamberg, wrote this in his journal in 1626. The 27th of May, the grapevines all over Franconia in both bishoprics of Bamberg and Würzburg were destroyed by frost, as well as the deer corn, which had faded already. Everywhere around Zeal, everything was destroyed by frost, which had never happened in people's memory. An intense pleading and begging started among the common rabble, asking why the authorities went on tolerating that the sorcerers and witches are damaging even the crops. Therefore, his princely highness was alerted to punish such evil, and therefore the witch persecution started this year. The widespread accusations of witchcraft during these centuries fit alongside the timeline of the Little Ice Age, which was a weather phenomenon that pelted villages with freak frosts, floods, hailstorms, and plagues of mice and caterpillars. Witch hunts tended to correspond with these ecological disasters and crop failures. People love to find a scapegoat for their problems, whether it's immigrants in the 21st century, Jews in the 20th, or witches in the 17th. The period of the European witch trials, which saw the largest number of fatalities, seems to have occurred between 1560 and 1670. This period saw more than 40,000 deaths. An estimated 75 to 85 percent of those accused in the early modern witch trials were women, and there is certainly evidence of this misogyny in the contemporary commentary of the time. Nicholas Remy was a French magistrate who claimed in his book to have overseen the execution of more than 800 witches and the torture or persecution of a similar number. He published his book Demonolatry in 1595, and it soon became one of the most recognized handbooks for witch hunters in parts of Europe. In it, he writes, It is not unreasonable that this scum of humanity should be drawn chiefly from the feminine sex, and the devil uses them so because he knows that women love carnal pleasures, and he means to bind them to his allegiance by such agreeable provocations. So in Europe, the weather turned sour and the misogyny ran rampant. But what happened in the New World? Well, the Little Ice Age had similar impacts in the New England area as well. The starving time at Jamestown, which happened in the winter of 1607, was related to this, as was the ongoing droughts and crop failures of most of the early settlements in the colonies. The settlers had arrived during one of the most drastic droughts of the past 800 years, based on tree ring studies, which, in addition to explaining some of the tensions among settlers, also explained some of the conflicts which occurred between the English settlers and the natives, food scarcity. Bad weather, malaria, and many other problems plagued settlers constantly and undoubtedly played into the New England witch trial insanity as well. 
But it wasn't just the Little Ice Age at play. It was the entire culture of Puritan life. The Puritans effectively operated as a snitch culture, though I suppose they might more kindly phrase it as being their brother's keeper. Puritans feared excessive individualism and lack of social unity, and there was little privacy to be had in these settlements. In New England in the 1600s, community conflict or stress had a direct relationship to accusations of witchcraft. The covenant with God that the Puritans believed they had forged meant that God would make them an example, as John Winthrop put it in 1630. They would be a city upon a hill, but if that covenant was broken, the entire community would suffer from God's wrath. Which, of course, means that if anything went wrong in their society, it had to mean that someone was breaking that covenant, and that person needed to be stopped. In addition to this, Puritans viewed themselves as God's chosen people and believed that with that position came the constant threat of the devil attacking them, trying to corrupt them and pull them away from God. Which is why a belief in witchcraft, where someone makes a covenant with the devil because of promises of power and wealth, was so easy for them to believe in. The Salem Witch Trials are the most well-known in American history. This is largely because of the account written by Arthur Miller in The Crucible, which basically every American who took a high school English class has read. However, those trials are merely the last and largest of a long string of accusations throughout the Puritan colonies of New England in the 17th century. In the mid-1600s, prior to the Salem trials, there were 93 cases of formal accusations of witchcraft, 50 in Massachusetts and 43 in Connecticut. A total of 16 people were put to death, while others were either acquitted or escaped before they could be executed. There were three typical outcomes to a witch trial in New England. The accused were acquitted and returned to normal life within the community, they fled to a different region, or were convicted and executed. Records show that most often people were acquitted of the charges against them. Although no one general profile fits all of the cases, women were the most often targeted, just as they had been in Europe. Often the targeted woman was known for her rebellious or disruptive behavior, or she had a reputation as a troublemaker because she went against the grain of the community by, for example, refusing to attend church. If a woman had been unpleasant or angry with someone and that person fell ill, the woman might be accused of cursing them. Same if someone's livestock died or their crops did poorly. Women who were midwives were often accused, especially if a baby died in childbirth or was born somehow malformed. Accusations of witchcraft also served to reinforce the social hierarchy. Women who spoke out against the church or disobeyed their husbands because they were dissatisfied with their lot in life were showing pride and disdain for the social order mandated by God, which automatically made them suspect. This is another feature of why, within the Puritan witch trials, women were the primary focus of accusations. Only about 20% of accused witches during this period were male, and most of them were considered guilty simply because of their association with suspected witches who were women. There was also a difference in how cases of accusation of witchcraft played out, depending upon the gender of the accused. In cases where a man or woman confessed to witchcraft, women were more commonly believed and executed, while men were often rebuked for lying and charged with a fine. Because, of course, a man couldn't actually be a witch. That's just crazy. We all know men are fine, upstanding citizens with zero flaws, and women are all one step away from being lustful harlots who copulate with the devil under the full moon. Or something like that, anyway. In Carol F. Carlson's book, The Devil in the Shape of a Woman, she discusses at length how economic considerations also played a part in accusations of witchcraft in New England. Witches in England and Europe had tended to not be well off, but in New England, women from all sorts of economic backgrounds were accused. 
In particular, Carlson discusses the system of inheritance and how it played a part in the accusations of witchcraft. Inheritance disputes surfaced quite often in witchcraft cases during this period. Many of the women who were accused in New England also happened to be women who were inheriting, either due to widowhood or being the sole heir to their family. Coincidence? Possibly, but only if you think it was also a coincidence that Elizabeth Bathory, powerful and wealthy landowner, was accused of witchcraft and serial murder. It was not necessarily greed that motivated these accusations, however, but in many ways it was simply that these women threatened the ordered rules of society that Puritans saw as normal. Women with money and property and no man to answer for their use of either? Clearly the work of the devil. Get your pitchforks. And of course, there were many other reasons why women would be targeted more than men in these accusations. The first is that women had less political and social power and had a harder time mounting a defense. Single women or widows were more commonly accused, and the older a woman got, the more likely an accusation was as well. However, married women weren't safe from suspicion either, nor were unmarried young women, especially by the time the witch hunting craze came to Salem in 1692. All 14 of the young single women accused in Salem fit one other particular demographic as well. They all happened to be the daughters or granddaughters of other accused witches. In any case, I could go on with more and more statistical information. Carlson's book provides a wealth of it, but I'll let you pick up her book yourself and give it a read if that sort of content is something that interests you. What's really very interesting about the New England witch trials is that an accusation was not necessarily a death sentence. Many who were accused, both male and female, were acquitted. However, repeat accusations were also somewhat common, especially for women, and some acquitted women chose to simply move towns or colonies altogether in order to avoid the suspicions of neighbors who might be watching them more closely now that they'd been accused of witchcraft once. So if the culture of the Puritans made paranoia and accusation the default, why is it that fewer accusations and convictions for witchcraft occurred? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is population size. The Holy Roman Empire, which covered most of what is now Germany today and where the majority of the European witch trials occurred, had a population of something like 27 to 34 million in 1600, whereas the Puritan colonies in the New World had a much smaller population. By the mid-1640s, Massachusetts Bay Colony only had around 20,000 inhabitants. Just on a statistical basis, it makes sense for more people to equal more accusations. I'm not a statistician, so don't ask me to break this down to per capita numbers, especially since the number of accused and executed during the European witch trials is not something I have a truly solid number on anyway. The reason for the lower number of executions, however, appears to have mostly had to do with the legal system of the era. The Puritans were extremely invested in law and order. In Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, he mentions that one of the first structures built in the settlement was a prison, and while the novel is fiction, it very well captures the Puritan society of the time. And while many of the punishments and interrogation methods used by the Puritans at this time would absolutely be considered inhumane tortures today, they still had a legal system that tried all accused witches. They didn't just form a mob and tie women to a stake without due process, such as it was. Witchcraft was one of the 12 crimes that could result in capital punishment, but you had to prove guilt before anyone was taken to the gallows. This was likely due to the English legal system, which held sway even though the Puritan colonists might not have loved that fact. And compared to the European witch trials, the system of law for proving a witch was a witch was, well, it wasn't exactly as civilized as a Boston legal episode, but they had standards, all right? Maybe not standards that we'd find reasonable today, but standards nonetheless. 
The primary English law about witchcraft was originally an act against conjuration, witchcraft, and dealing with evil and wicked spirits, sometimes also called the Witchcraft Act of 1604. This had made witchcraft a felony. A witch convicted of a minor offense could receive a year in prison, but any witch accused and found guilty a second time would be sentenced to death. In 1641, the legislative body of the Massachusetts Bay Colony drafted the Body of Liberties, a collection of civil and criminal laws and rights which governed their colony. In this text, they reference the Bible in their law and witchcraft. If any man or woman be a witch, that is, hath or consulteth with familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. Exodus 22, 118, Deuteronomy 13, 6, 10, Deuteronomy 17, 2, and 6. Despite this, few people were ever actually executed for witchcraft, at least in comparison to the numbers accused in New England. In some cases, the juries were simply reluctant to convict on a charge of witchcraft and instead chose to convict the accused of lighter crimes that carried a less harsh sentence. But in many cases, the burden of proof required by English legal tradition was just too high. Here I quote from the Massachusetts legal blog. The rules of evidence were vague. Legal experts insisted on a clear and convincing proof of a crime. The best proof was a confession and the testimony of at least two trustworthy people that the accused had acted with magical powers given by the devil. Even confessions were considered doubtful without other evidence. So-called spectral evidence, in which a victim testifies to experiencing attack by a witch in spirit form invisible to everyone else, was not accepted as evidence. The reason for how out of control the Salem witch trials got was simply because of a legal loophole of sorts. The Salem witchcraft trials of 1692 happened at the worst possible time. The charter of the colony had been temporarily suspended from 1684 to 1691 due to some political and religious friction between the colony and England. That happened a lot back then. The new charter arrived from England in May of 1692 along with the new governor, but as yet the general court had not had time to create any laws. Nevertheless, the new governor created a special court to deal with the witch cases. The commission that created this court said that the judges were to act according to the law and custom of England and of this their majesty's province, but this ignored some of the major differences between the laws of England and the old laws of England. In the absence of specific guidance and specific laws and acting along with the general paranoia of the community, the judges famously began accepting spectral evidence and other untrustworthy kinds of evidence as proof of guilt. Moreover, the magistrates let it be known that an accused witch could avoid execution by confessing, repenting, and putting the blame on someone else, and this causes all of these accusations to multiply. And yet, even with the higher-than-average number of executions for a New England witch trial, the numbers could have been far worse in Salem than they were. Depending on the source, anywhere from 150 to 200 people were accused during this one hysterical event. But only 19 were executed directly for the crime of witchcraft, while one was tortured to death by pressing, while a few others did die in prison. Compared to European numbers, this wasn't just minor leagues, it was little league. Of course, that's not to say that the entire concept isn't a horrifying loss of life and commentary on the misogyny, greed, and paranoia of the entire era, but it could have been worse. So on the whole, I guess we can award one point to English law on this. And English law had kept the number of executions down considerably during the English witch trials as well, with only about 500 people being estimated to have been executed for witchcraft. Compare that to the European numbers. At least the English legal system tried, unlike the one at the Bamberg witch trials, where a ban was issued that prohibited even criticism of the trials, with the punishment being whipping and banishment. 
To close out this episode, I'd like to take some time to clear up a couple of misconceptions that are extremely common these days about how witch trials were conducted. For one, the idea of witches being burned at the stake. Well, this was a practice that was used in Europe. It was not a practice that England or New England practiced. There were a few occasions in which accused witches were burned at the stake in England, but in those cases, they were usually burned for separate crimes. For instance, in the cases of Mary Lakeland and Mary Oliver, they were accused of using witchcraft to kill their husbands. As I noted back in episode 6, murder of your husband was considered petty treason in England, for which the punishment was burning at the stake. Witchcraft, on the other hand, was generally punished by hanging. Another misconception is the idea that the old sink-or-swim test was the typical way to prove someone was a witch. The swimming test became popular in the late 16th century in England. King James I wrote in his Daemonology in 1597 that the reason this test worked was that witches, due to their dealings with the devil, would naturally have refused baptism, which meant that water, the element used in baptism, would spit them out and prevent them from sinking. And I quote, it appears that God has appointed for a supernatural sign of the monstrous impiety of the witches that the water shall refuse to receive them in her bosom that have shaken off them the sacred water of baptism and willfully refuse the benefit thereof. Honestly, though, if refusing baptism and making a covenant with the devil can ensure that I will never drown, I might consider it. However, this was far from accepted by everyone. In fact, it was a Puritan, William Perkins, who published a rebuttal to this idea in 1608. In it, he pointed out that not all water is the water of the baptism. That's not to say that this wasn't used in rural areas. It definitely was. Famously, the self-proclaimed witchfinder general, Matthew Hopkins, used it quite liberally between March and May of 1645 until judges arrived and made him stop. Hopkins was responsible for more executions of witches than any other witch hunter in England in the brief three-year period where he worked. Hopkins' witch hunting methods were outlined in his book, The Discovery of Witches, which was published in 1647. These practices were highly influential and used in the New England witch hunts and trials as well. One day, I'll probably make an entire episode specifically on the methods of witch hunting and the supposed activities and behaviors of witches, an episode that will undoubtedly revisit Hopkins' methods. But for the time being, keep in mind that Hopkins made a lot of money off his witch hunting, and most people consider him today to be a charlatan at best, and at worst, someone who was actively paid off to commit perjury in his investigations. Witch trials and witchcraft will undoubtedly remain a part of history that fascinates us, but it's worthwhile for us to remember that the history of these events is more complicated and certainly less supernatural than most media would ever depict it as. It might feel nice and safe to look at these events as simply the product of a less enlightened past, where a lack of education and science allowed superstition to run wild. But that allows us to pretend that the witch trials are over, when the reality is that we have witch trials every day in society— Every time a group seeks to oppress a minority through vile statements like groomer, or if he'd just cooperated with the police, he'd be fine. Every time politicians try to maintain their position by questioning the validity of election results and the safety of mail-in ballots against all evidence to the contrary. And every time society tries to scapegoat some other part of society as the cause for all our problems. Well, that's the same motivation for the witch trials, trying to squirm its way back into society. Let's maybe try to be better than that. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Bitchy History. Monday the 12th, we'll be back with another episode dealing with the history of the Puritans. This time, we'll finally be getting to that often misunderstood first Thanksgiving at Plymouth that I've been promising for a couple of weeks now. 
If you are enjoying this podcast, it would be absolutely amazing if you could leave a review, especially if you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Sharing episodes to your social media following would be super as well. Find me on TikTok or Instagram. My username is at Professor Meredith on both. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here on Monday.